you'd open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. I want you to know my dad doesn't get rattled easy, but the very first time I ever preached was at my dad's church. It was a Sunday evening. Service began at 6.30, ended at 7.30, so I was going to preach at 7. I was a little nervous. She was a lot nervous. I think I was 19. 7 o'clock, I get up. We open our Bibles to Romans 8.28. I pray. I read the verse. I preach. Three points plus three application points. Probably um, 10 or 12 references, and I finish in seven minutes. <laughs> My dad was stunned because after, at 7.07, I prayed, and he's going to lead the, <laughs> the closing hymn. And I don't know who was, I don't know who was playing the piano, but... I think he panicked just a little bit that evening. But my mom was encouraging me. She said, you got it all in. So <laughs> anyway, let's, uh, let's bow for prayer. Father, again, we thank you so much for your grace and kindness and love. We just thank you, Lord, again, that we have much to celebrate, much to be thankful for, much to sing about. And Father, we ask that as we continue our study through the book of Ephesians, that, Lord, that you would help us to think through the issues that Paul raises, that, Father, we'll take a very hard look at our life and the way we live and that, Father, we may do all that we can to ensure that we are living a life that reveals that we know you, that we uh, will be able to represent you well. That, Father, that <clears throat> we would not put up any obstacle to the sharing of the gospel. Uh, that, Lord, that uh, we would reflect the great grace of God in our lives. So, Father, we again thank you for your love for us and again for being so patient with us, Father. We know, Lord, that there are many things that we cover that do point out that there are areas that we need to grow and you've been kind and gracious in your dealings with us. And so we are grateful. And again, I ask you bless our study. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of of disobedience. So I want you to keep in mind that as we continue to work our way through verses 3 and 4, that what Paul is doing here is he's helping us to understand <clears throat> what it means to walk in love. He's already told us to walk in love and we are to do it the way that Christ has loved us. But now he wants us to understand what it isn't so that if we're living in this way or if we are inclined in this way, we'll know that to walk in love also means that there are certain things that we do not do. And so, as we've been dealing with verse 3 in particular, uh, spending one, uh, one week on just fornication, and then dealing with the other issues last week, I want to make sure that we understand again that the goal is for us to live in a way that exemplifies the love of Christ in our lives. Again, the impurity that he spoke about last time, <clears throat> which uh, you may have it translated uncleanness, uh, impurity, uncleanness, it describes a filthiness of heart and mind that makes the person defiled. 
uh, the unclean person then in this in, in, in this description sees dirt and everything. So when I say the unclean person, I'm not necessarily emphasizing that the person may be an unbeliever. This could be a believer or a non-believer. He's just simply telling us that this is not to be named among believers. That this is not to be our mindset. This is not to be the way that we live. Again, the word covetousness or greed that he uses here is a word which simply means to have more. And so it just describes this insatiable craving or greed. It's a, a consuming ambition uh, that someone may have. It is giving rein or allowing certain appetites to rule or certain desires to rule in your life. And these are against them the laws of God and at times against the laws of man. So there's a call here by Paul for us to pursue holiness And this is not just where we, in a sense, just do the best that we can. We do want to do the best that we can. But the call here is for us to live in obedience. So it's not all shucks, I've messed up. We have sinned against a holy God. We ought to take these things seriously, confess them, and seek God's help in living in the way that God has called us to live. And Paul is so concerned about this area. It's kind of like there's, a, there's a, a sphere or a bubble where there's just a lot of filth in it that we are really accustomed to. And I think that's why he, he spends a lot of time in these two verses. There's a lot of words that he uses to give a full description of what he's talking about. And I think that he does this because those he writes to, which includes us, We are accustomed to this, so we don't always see what's really all that wrong with it. We see what's wrong with some of the things, some of the more extreme things. Like when we're talking about fornication and and all the things that go with that, we recognize that and we we see that and go, yeah, I I don't do those things. We, We clearly identify those things as sinful behaviors that we're not to be involved in. But the other words that he's throwing in there, again, is to give us pause to think so that we do not become like the Pharisees who had deluded themselves into thinking that because they had simply kept themselves from the physical act of adultery, that they somehow were innocent or clean. And that's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that if you look at a woman and lust after her, again, remember, he doesn't say that you are as bad as an adulterer. He says you are one. So then these other words that he's describing, he doesn't want us to begin to think that somehow, well, I don't do these things. I don't dabble in these things. So these things don't really apply to me. The pristine nature of holiness that God desires from us. Again, it's not God's desire to squash us. It's not his desire to take away fun or to take away enjoyment. He really wants us to have those things. But this is the wrong direction to go. This is truly offensive to him and it is truly dangerous to us. Not only is it dangerous to us in our relationship with the Lord, but again, remember that our sin, if we don't address these things and deal with them, sometimes we are the biggest obstacle or hindrance to those that we care about from really hearing the gospel. Because of our, we don't always intend to have a nonchalant attitude towards sin. But sometimes we kind of still do. It's not that big of a deal. I know I really shouldn't say, so thing, so say such things, but you know how it is. I'm only human, or whatever it happens to be. And, and, and again, it's not that we walk around saying that we're just a worm and that we're no good and that we should be beat every day. It's not that. But again, it's, it's just an understanding that we don't need 
to be this way. We should stop being this way. And we need to be on our guard because the world is constantly seeking to influence us and draw us away from those things that God has called us to. That's why then, when you read this, he says at the end of verse 3, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for, for the saints. And so as we took a look at that, uh, again, what we saw is that to jest about these things, or even to make it a frequent subject of conversation, is to introduce it into the mind and to bring one nearer to actually doing it than if this wasn't a main topic of conversation. So Paul is warning that there are some things that are not even safe to talk about. So we must always be on our guard, even to that degree. These things should not even be discussed in a way that might lessen their sinful or shameful character. There's always this great danger that we may maybe unwittingly speak lightly of these things, or maybe make excuses for them, uh, or as we discuss them, if we discuss them frequently, they become familiar, and so then as they become familiar, they tend to be less um, offensive to us. It's not that the nature of what we're talking about has changed, but we become, in a sense, desensitized to it. We become used to that. And so, and so when that takes place, again, there's a change in the wrong direction for us. So he actually continues the thought in trying to describe this mindset or the way that we, the spirit of the age, so to, so to speak, that we kind of live in and, and we are a product of. So verse 3 again, but then in particular verse 4. So again, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So basically this list, this vice list continues. Filthiness is a word that he uses. And it's even in English, it's a strong language. It's just just kind of a... For lack of a better way to put it, a yucky kind of word, it's really, you know, we don't always think of ourselves as being, when we sin, as being filthy. Uh, but, but there's an emphasis on, on that word. It is anything that is indecent or dishonorable. It is that which is inappropriate conduct. It's something that is ugly, shameful, or base, or disgraceful. It describes impropriety or improper conduct. Again, whether in action or word, or even thought and intent. It is an ugly-sounding word which describes ugly, shameful conduct of any kind, specifically conduct which is contrary to a person who is inhabited by the Spirit of Christ. So that's that's what he's getting at when when he uses these words, is because we possess the Spirit of God, because we now belong to Christ, these things are very important for us to pay attention to, and we are to flee. Now again, remember that as Paul writes this, the pagan religions that existed at that time, remember that pagan religions did not make demands on an individual's personal life and personal conduct. The main thing was that you got involved in certain rituals, maybe brought certain gifts, brought a certain amount of money, whatever it happened to be, but there was never, you never had a, a pagan religion that talked about the way you should treat your neighbor, the way you should treat your wife, the way you should treat your husband, the way you should raise your kids. It's not, it's not, they don't have that. Uh, the idea was to make it always uh, uh, very ritualistic. It makes us feel spiritual. Uh, at times, uh, there were things where they were to kind of appeal to your carnal nature uh, because the idea was for you to think about having a good time. There were certain gods that were very popular, Bacchus, you know, the god of wine. 
you celebrate by drinking wine and getting drunk. So people were there, oh, I'm into that. So, you know, people would, would uh, gravitate toward those types of things. So Judaism and Christianity, both of those were very unique in that <clears throat> God made it clear that, again, because he is our creator, then we are obligated in every sense of the word, in every aspect of our life. So Paul, as he writes this, he's not just writing to a Jewish audience which already understood those things, but these Gentiles, those who were saved out of paganism, this is all of this type of thing is brand new to them. They've never thought like this. This is truly a remarkable thing. And they recognize it for what it is. But again, you know, they may be thinking, well, how far does this go? I mean, how much of my life do I need to be aware of? How much do I need to change? Well, all these words are beginning to describe what we need to be aware of. He then uses the phrase, after the word filthiness, which, is, which can include both your conduct and talking, then he gets to foolish talking, or some translation may say silly talk. It is unclean speech. It is where you're speaking and there's induendo, or maybe double meaning in the things that you're saying, where sometimes individuals are, because of their wickedness, they're, you know, they're talking to people, they're playing word games, and you know, they're saying one thing, but they mean something else. There's a vileness that's there. Uh, sometimes you see that uh, comedians do that. Sometimes the sitcoms that they have on TV and all the various things, you know, th- there's usually a lot of sexual innuendo. There's a lot of that there. But they, they will make those implications with normal conversations. And so then somehow, as you watch it, you see one person who doesn't understand maybe the inference and this person is just going away as filthy as possible. And because this person's kind of innocent responses, then everybody's laughing because it's funny. Well, that's not really to be funny. And we need to be aware of that. And we ourselves should not engage in that kind of conversation. So among the heathen, basically they considered it an art to take a simple statement and make it dirty. He's telling us here that we shouldn't even be laughing at that. So again, filthiness coarse jesting or silly talk or foolish talking are all in the context of immorality. Again, that's the bubble that he's dealing with, is immorality, and in particular, in the central area. So these things have some relationship to that sin. That's what he's getting at. So again, filthiness, some have said that it is talking openly in mixed company about things that are filthy, things that are unclean, things that God says that are immoral and impure. Now, What's interesting, if you look back at the history of the early church, one of the things, especially in Roman society, that they considered to be uh, filthy, that you never spoke about in mixed company, was crucifixion. And Christians were always talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And the Romans considered that to be just, I can't, you you don't talk like that in mixed company. But then when it came to this other stuff that the Christians did not want to get into, they just, it was just all over the place. And again, what we see in our country, not just in conversations, but just in actions and everything else, a, a full accepting of a lowering of moral standards and a questioning that there should even be any moral standards. Uh, and and so, that's, so this is you know, obviously very relevant to, for us today. We are to be on our guard to not be like the world, and this is what our world is like. So it's not a new thing. It's been around for literally hundreds of years. Uh, So it's not more pronounced in a sense, because it's a very open thing um, that they were involved in and something that we see going on today. 
Coarse jesting that he uses here is speech which betrays a person as being foolish. Coarse jesting means that you take something that is shameful and then what you do is you make it appear acceptable by the humor that you put in it. So here what's, what he's talking about is this, the way that we are approaching the world, the way that we approach conversation, and then the way that we engage in these things that are kind of out there in the world. And we become a part of all of that. It's kind of like you breathe it in and you breathe it out. And so we kind of are going along for the ride, so to speak. And so we, uh, what he's, what he's protesting really here and warnings about is that to not be like the world in living like this. And, it, and it's very normal and natural to live that way. That way, It's very appealing to the flesh. It's very appealing to our society. Uh, it's very appealing to uh, various groups of people within our society. And so that's why we really have to be careful. Um, there, that's why sometimes somebody may come up to you, maybe someone that you know at work, and they, they may begin by saying, well, I know you're a Christian, but I know you're open-minded. Though you need to stop them right there before they go on. Say, what do you mean when you say, I'm open-minded? I may not be as open-minded as you think I am. Because they uh, often think that being open-minded means their definition, you're not a prude, they're going to tell you maybe an off-color joke. It may not be what they consider to be really dirty, but it's got that innuendo in there. They think it's funny. They want to share that with you. So that's why we have to be careful with that. Uh, And Christians aren't, because again, the way the world is going to interpret that is this. Just so you know, this is how people think normally. They share something with you that maybe just has some innuendo in it, but it's clear, so you you know what the innuendo is. But they share that with you, and maybe you chuckle or what have you, and they take that and extrapolate that to mean that you think and believe the same thing they do. Even though they may not have, have shared with you the most grotesque or base thing, they believe that the bridge has been built and you're there with them. And so we, that's why we have to be careful because people are going to interpret what we do as well as just recognize what we do. They're going to take it and run with it. And so we have to be careful. And we have to realize that that does mean that there will be times that people will think that you are prudish or that you're stuck up or, or what have you. You just have to get used to it. The, you know, the Bible tells us that the world's going to mock us. The world's going to make fun of us. You may not be a prude or whatever the word is they're trying to use to, to describe you, but they're going to accuse you of being that anyway because one of the main tools, again, that the evil one uses in our life to get us to, to ruin our witness or to cause us to be hesitant is mockery. Whether it's mocking the gospel or mocking the holiness that we're to pursue, the world's going to mock that. You've seen it when, in the way that, that um, Tim Tebow was treated over the past several years. And he, as I watched carefully, he wasn't one of those that was going around trying to bring attention to himself. Now, he, wasn't high, he doesn't hide his Christianity at all. He doesn't brag about pursuing holiness, but he pursues holiness. And when he's asked, he talks about it. And if you, if you listen to conversations, even if he's not being interviewed, they mock him. Every now and then, there'll be some non-believer who will, who will come on the air, or maybe some sports reporter will say, well, I know he was da-da-da-da, but I think he's legit. There's a, they notice that, because he's not 
two-faced like the world. But that's how the world responds. And you think of all the good things that, that he does. He's just an example. But notice what the world does. So the world, the way they treat him is not going to be any different for you and me. And it is going to be people that we are closely acquainted with. It may even be individuals who might consider friends. And we have to expect that to come our way. So that's why, so that's again the mockery that comes at us that Satan uses to try to get us to relax, to relax our standards, to relax our morals, or, or at least to relax some of these things. A fool, as, as it's used here, this idea of coarse jesting and what it reveals about an individual taking something shameful and trying to make it accepted by humor. This is what a fool does. And a fool then is not somebody who's mentally deficient but rather somebody who's morally deficient, and they're morally deficient because they ignore the word of God. And again, that is our standard. That's what we draw our standard from. Well, how do I know certain things are immoral? It's not because I'm somehow personally offended. That's what God says. Whether I feel offended or not, that's a separate issue. You know, my heart probably needs to continue to change so that I will be truly offended at things. But it doesn't matter if I feel offended or not. God says these things are immoral, therefore they are. And I need to obey and submit to what the Word of God says in that way. So again, Paul is referring here to speech that disregards or makes light of God's moral commandments. So we don't always make that connection, that when we, when we perhaps laugh or chuckle at things that we shouldn't, or uh, you know, maybe get involved in conversation where these induendos are flying all over the place, we don't make the connection that what we are doing in that moment, is that we are really making, we are making light of the commands of God. By our, by our um, attitudes, we are portraying that. We are communicating that to others. And so we, we do need to make sure that we do not portray that or communicate that. That's why if we then need to leave that conversation, then that's what you do. If they want to make, then they, let them say whatever they want. Remember also, with all of that because, you know, sometimes I do believe we're overly concerned about what other people think about us. We should be concerned to a degree, uh, but not overly concerned to where we allow what they think to direct our conduct. Our conduct is to be directed by the Spirit of God and obedience to the Word of God. But remember that there are some at least, and, you, and normally we may not be aware of it until it comes out later uh, from individuals, but, but for some, they're watching us, especially if they know that we're Christians, and they're really hoping that we blow it. Because for them, in their mind, if we go along with whatever, they believe they're off the hook. It's like, oh. And, and if, they're, if they were feeling any conviction, just because of your presence, because you say you love God, and for a moment they thought that you were actually really serious, and so they were starting to feel kind of, So if you are kind of involved in those things, it relaxes their attitude, and so now they, they will... Uh, without a, a feeling of guiltiness, disregard whatever you'll say. However, at the same time, for some of them, they're really hoping that you don't blow it. Because they want, they want to find someone who has real convictions in truth. They may not admit it to you. Some will never admit it. Some are, at the, at, are close to the breaking point. They, they're looking for someone to confide in. They're looking for somebody with wisdom. And they think, they may be thinking that you may be that person. And then you engage in that conversation and you've, you've, you've messed it up for them. So there are those that are watching. And sometimes they watch for years. 
And it may be that you're just planting the seed for someone else later because they meet someone else who's kind of like you. But when I was a, a long, long, long time ago, when I used to work at Pizza Hut in Hawaii, I was uh, transferred to a restaurant in Pearl City. I know you have no idea where that is, but anyway. Uh, I lived in the Wahiwal, and I worked there, then I went to Pearl City. You can look it up. You don't have to do that. So anyway, I went to Pearl City, and so um, this restaurant was having a lot of difficulties. So uh, one of the things I did was I was kind of retraining everybody in the way we're supposed to do things. And so I'm with, on this one day, it's my second day at this new restaurant, I'm teaching the cooks the way we need things to be done. And so as we're doing this, we're having, you know, different conversations. I'm asking the questions, trying to get to know them. And one of them said something. And I said, no, I said, I, I, don't, I don't do this thing. I said, besides, I'm a Christian, and I, I just think it's wrong, so I, I don't do that. And there was uh, one guy on each side of me and then another guy down. And we're on this steel table. They call it a make table because you make your food there. And he had this big knife, and he slammed it down hard. I mean, it, and it was loud. And he says, I can't believe it. Another blankety-blank Christian. And he walked off. I had no idea what was going on, but he was really upset. So I finished with them, and then, and then I went out and just you know, kind of tracked him down. I think his name was Danny. I said, Danny, what in the world is going on? And so we talked for a while. And the other guy that was the manager before me was a Christian. He claimed he was. He treated people very poorly. He was very uh, sarcastic to people in a mean way. Never admitted mistakes. Uh, didn't really work all that hard, but demanded things from them. And then uh, when they would do things that were questionable, like when the, when the uh, restaurant was closed, you know, he would say, is there anybody in the parking lot? And then he would, whatever they're doing, he would do. And so as he kind of explained all that, I said, well, look, I said, I don't know the guy. I, I'm not going to tell you whether he was a Christian or not a Christian. All I can say is at least be fair and not judge me based on what he's done before you get to know me. At least do that. I said in the same way that I was told when I came to this restaurant, all the workers here are slack. And you're all lazy and I'm probably going to have to fire all of you anyway. I'm giving, I come in, all of you have a clean slate as far as I'm concerned. You'll have to earn your way to getting fired. I'm not going to come in and just have the bad attitude and fire you. So I'm going to treat you that way. Could you treat me that way? And so he agreed. And he was actually one of the few that I didn't fire. But, <laughs> but anyway, but that sometimes is, is what can happen. So we need to make sure that um, we take these things very seriously because we can, we can have a, a very detrimental effect on others. And you ask yourself, why would someone be... Because I ask myself that sometimes. Why are some people so upset when they see hypocrisy in Christians? Because there's hypocrisy with Muslims. There's hypocrisy with Mormons. There's hypocrisy with all kinds of people. Why is it with the Christian they're so upset? Uh, I think there's some things going on there. Maybe they, you know, you go back to Romans 1. Romans 1 says people know that God exists. They, there's certain things they know. And uh, so I think there's connections with all those things that we need to keep in mind. There's a man who wrote a commentary named Albert Barnes, who says this about coarse jesting. He says, coarse jesting means that kind of talk which is insipid, senseless, stupid, and foolish, which is not fitted to instruct, edify, profit, the idle chit-chat, which is so common in the world. The meaning is that Christians should aim to have their conversation sensible, serious, 
sincere, remembering the words of the Lord, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account of in the day of judgment. Now again, that doesn't mean that we become these super serious people that can't joke around and have fun. Because we can. That's the way we do it. I think I showed you, I won't go into all the details of the story, but I've told you before how on this one particular Friday in the jail when I was a chaplain, we were just having all different kinds of conversations. And we were really having, a, I mean, we were having a, a good time. And one of the men uh, who had been in the dorm for about four months uh, told me afterwards, he said, you know, he said, that is the first time in my entire life I can ever remember laughing and it wasn't at something dirty. He had, he had never done that before. Every, from the time he was a kid, he can remember, everything he laughed at was things that were dirty. And we were laughing, having a good time, and there was nothing dirty. And, he, and I didn't even think anything about it. I, would, I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, we're having good, clean fun. I wasn't thinking that. We're just, you know, just being myself. But what happened was, is this guy and several others, they noticed that. And so we want people to see us having a good time and enjoying each other and kidding each other. All those things are great. But we don't have to go here. And that's what Paul's concerned about. Again, course, jesting literally means to, uh, the, the literal translation means to turn easily. So it's the idea of being witty in a, very, in a very vulgar sense. You are turning a phrase, an innocent phrase, to become something dirty or vulgar. And, and you do it very easily. Uh, in fact, that was kind of a, um, a viewed by some as being a great uh, talent to be able to do that. Oh, that person's so witty because they can turn that into this or in, into that. Uh, the individual can make the quick comeback with clever words that can have double meanings and that type of thing. The noun form that's used here for coarse jesting can mean, a witty, again, a witty person, but it's always used in a bad sense. It's someone who's scoffing, someone who sneers, someone who offers coarse jokes. Another one said that coarse jesting includes talking to somebody, but you have a hidden agenda. You're baiting the person with what you are saying because you have a double meaning. You are seeing if they're going to listen to you so you can move to silly talk and then to the filthiness, which leads you to the greed, which basically is there's something that you have that I want and I'm going to do everything I can to try and get it. And then Leon Morris says this, it seems surprising at first glance that foolish talking and jesting will be condemned as in the same category of sins as fornication and filthiness. Nevertheless, there are many biblical warnings against every idle word. And it may be significant that the only biblical reference to jesting is a warning against it. There are also many such biblical commands, let your speech always be seasoned with grace, etc. It seems that the popularity of many Christian speakers is measured by the amount of the humorous antidotes and witticism that they can inject into their message as opposed to the content and application of the word. So again, as we saw earlier in the letter, Paul is warning against sins of the tongue which again are really sins of the heart. People have base appetites and it usually cultivates a base kind of speech and a base kind of humor. And often people who want to commit sexual sins or think about those things, they've committed themselves to jesting about them. Warren Wiersbe says that two indications of a person's character are what makes him laugh and what makes him weep. So there may be a time in your life as a Christian, and maybe it's happened recently, that someone tells an off-color joke or something, and you laugh. You confess your sin to God, and you realize that your heart hasn't changed as much as it needs to. So, so I'm not saying we need to condemn ourselves, that you're no good, and you're not even saved. Now, if that's a regular part of your life, we may have to talk about that. But 
The thing is, there are, there are times that we find ourselves caught up or uh, in one way or another, or maybe in passing, where we hear something that maybe we really shouldn't, and we, we laugh, and, we, and we're so angry that we laugh. But don't just get angry that you laughed. Ask God to help your heart to change so that you no longer find that funny. That's what we want. So I no longer find that funny. I want to become a different person. I don't want to, I don't want to be except everybody else because they think I can laugh with, at what they laugh at. I, I want to be different uh, than them. But then what's very interesting, I think, is the way that he ends the verse. And look at what he says in verse 4. After he goes through all these things that we should not be doing, he says, but rather giving of thanks. So you've got to ask yourself a question. How in the world, what is the connection between giving of thanks and we as Christians avoiding fornication and covetousness and filthiness and impurity and uncleanness and foolish talking and coarse jesting? How does, th- does thankfulness combat that? How does it do that? Why is that phrase there? That instead of talking like this, you should be thankful. Because it doesn't seem to be really obvious why that is there and how that's helpful. Because Paul is dealing with the practical application of the word of God and what it says. You would think that maybe that what Paul would say is that we are to replace sexual impurity with purity. Well, we should pursue purity, but that again, that's not what he says. We might think that the alternative to sexual immorality and greed is to do this or do that, but he says that the alternative is to give thanks. So here, let me uh, kind of share some thoughts with you. When I, I say, I'm saying in closing, but it's going to take 10 minutes. All right, so you don't think that's 30 seconds, just so you know. So to be thankful as a believer, we, we must be in submission, first of all, to God's sovereignty over every detail of our life. You see, if we grumble and complain on a regular basis, I'm not, sometimes we grumble, you know, you go to a restaurant and you've, you're served rotten chicken, you know, and so you complain because you, you want chicken that's not rotten, that's not sinful. You know, but there are those who complain and grumble about a lot of things often, and that's just, that's wrong. Believers not to do that. But here's the thing. If we're doing that, what we're really saying is that we know what's best for us and we know better than God. That's why we have to be very careful when it comes even to complaining. And we cannot say, well, I've just always been that way. Well, then you've always been wrong. We need to change that. Again, it doesn't mean that we're not facing reality. It doesn't mean that we're pretending to have a positive attitude about everything. We ought to be positive, but we're not talking about, you know, the individual who's kind of ditzy and, oh, everything is one. You don't see reality. We need to see reality. But the way we respond as believers is different. When things go wrong in my life, with my health, with my finances, if things go wrong in your life, with your health, with your finances, whatever it happens to be, what we do know is that God is in charge of all things, period. We can at least say that God has caused or allowed everything that has happened to happen, period. For me to complain and to continue to complain is basically to accuse God of either failing or doing wrong. And we're not to do that as believers, period. So to be thankful then, at least we should understand that we, that we uh, need to submit our lives, our attitudes, our thinking, our emotions to God's sovereignty, because God is sovereign over every detail of my life. So not just my action, not just what I believe, but the way I think, even the way I feel. 
Remember that Satan tempted Eve by getting her to doubt God's goodness when it came to withholding of the forbidden fruit. When she bit into Satan's lure that the fruit would really be good for her, she yielded to sin. Satan's going to use the same ploy to tempt you and I to fulfill, whether it's sexual desires or some kind of disobedience to God. If you read Paul's account of the degradation of the human race in Romans chapter 1, at the root of it was this, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. It's right there smack in this, right before we get to this incredible slide of man. That's what man doesn't do. Man doesn't give thanks. So by faith, we must bow before God's sovereignty over our circumstances and give him thanks. We, it's not that we're giving thanks for what happened, but we can give thanks to God in what happened. There, there's a difference in that. So it's not that if all of a sudden you, you know, you're in a bad auto wreck, that we oh, Lord, I thank you that I was in a bad auto wreck. That's, that's not what we're talking about. Now, we can be thankful that we didn't get hurt bad or we didn't get hurt worse. Or there's all those things that are in that. We're also grateful that God is with us in that. We're also grateful to know that even though I still may not know the purpose as to why God caused or allowed that, God is there with me in that. And we are to be thankful. And that does affect our our attitude and our response. We need to remember that we are not entitled to anything. It normally bothers us when we see others in society who believe that they are entitled to things. They are entitled to things from, let's say, the government. That really bothers us. We need to make sure that we're not the same way, that we're just different. We're not entitled to anything. Our life, our very existence, is an unearned gift from God. And so we should strive to be grateful for the many gifts that we've received. We need to regard our life and the miracle of creation with the appropriate awe and appreciation. I was reading through some uh, psychological studies on uh, what gratefulness and thankfulness can do for a person. And these are, this is from the secular world. Sometimes they get things right. And this is what some of them said as, as I put some of them together. Gratitude will enable you to develop a sense of obligation to value, to preserve, and to promote life and to respect all aspects of creation. That is really good for a non-believer. But it's true. Gratitude, being grateful, will enable us to develop this sense where we have a sense of obligation to value life, to preserve life, and to promote life. Those who are not grateful, they don't have that. At least not to the degree that they should. We should know how indebted we really are. And if we recognize how indebted we are, in this sense, to God, then it will keep us from feeling entitled. If that keeps you from feeling entitled, that will keep you from from a self-centered approach, even to our relationships. Feelings of entitlement inevitably lead to irresponsible actions. It leads to bitter feelings when you're feeling denied the satisfaction of whatever your wants are. Gratitude begets a sense of reverence for life and a sense of well-being when we do our part to help sustain it. It's hard to imagine a person with genuine awe and respect for the wonders of creation callously polluting and destructively consuming people and things and whatnot. So within the realm of human relationships, it's also hard to imagine a person who really values life and the well-being of all 
treating another human being with callous or cruel indifference. And remember that as he talks about the way that we are to conduct ourselves, he is always connecting it to not just what we represent God in being, but how we affect others in, as we involve them or involve ourselves in our relationships and communication with them. So you see, gratitude then is not just a nice thing to have. It is something that we desperately need to have, to be genuinely healthy, to be genuinely whole, and to be genuinely holy. We need to develop a thankful heart for all of God's blessings. And again, we should recognize as believers that we cannot just say, you know what, Bob, you're right. Starting tonight, service is over at 7, I am now going to be grateful. Now, I want you to, to be that way, but it won't take long before we go back into the old way of living. So we ask God in his graciousness and in his goodness to continue to change my heart by his spirit through the word of God and help to develop within me because I am unable and at times unwilling for my heart to be that and asking him to change my heart so I will truly be grateful. Not playing the part of the grateful person, but truly being grateful for all that God has done in my life, everything, not just the big, nice things, but for, my, for life itself, for what we possess. And I don't mean the cars you own, but the relationships and, uh, that we have and all those things. And, and obviously, most importantly, to be grateful for what we have in Christ. And when that begins to happen, then we will then begin to find it easier to move away from these types of sins that so often draw people in who often, after a while, what they have in common is not just the sexual innuendos, they also happen to be a group of people who tend to be a little bit on the bitter side. They tend to be a little cynical. And that's why they like the cutting humor. That's why they like things that, that get dirty, because they've got nowhere else to go with that. So confess our sin to God, ask him to help us to pursue these things because it brings happiness and contentment to us, it brings glory to God, and I believe it then hopefully will enable others to see their need of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and again your great patience with us. Father, for some of us, there was a time when we were very much in the middle of doing the kinds of things that Paul describes here, whether it's by action or by our thoughts or by our vocabulary, by our speech patterns, or maybe a little bit of all of it. Father, we understand what Paul is saying and what he's talking about, and maybe for many years how easy it was just to live this way without even thinking about it. I pray, Father, you'd help us to examine our hearts, our lives, our conversations, that, Father, we would strive to move away from this. But, Father, knowing that it's not just not doing these things, that our heart needs to change. And where it needs to change is what Paul emphasized here, which is we need to be grateful. We need to have a thankful heart. So, Father, we ask you to forgive us for not being as thankful as we ought to be. Also, Father, help us to not be bitter towards others who are not as thankful as they should be. Help us, Father, to live our lives in a way that pleases and honors you and to be grateful ourselves. And then, Father, perhaps you will use us in a way to draw them in the proper direction. And because of our proper attitude towards you and towards life, they will see the better way and will be an encouragement to other believers. And, Father, also we will then no longer be the hindrance to others seeing and hearing of their need of the gospel. 
And so, Father, we thank you that you forgive. We thank you, Lord, that we are not condemned as your children. We are grateful for that. We thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.